Recovery Elevator, episode 414. And alcohol very quickly um, became the catalyst and the glue to allow me um, to be this person that was accepted regardless of, of being perfect. Uh, like this? Yeah, that should work. Mix down. <laughs> yeah, keep going. Yo, yo. Mix down. Three, four. Yo, yo. Wiki, wiki. Three, Mix four. down. There we go. Seven, eight. Wiki, wiki. Mix down. Guys in the house. <laughs> I love it. Wiki, wiki. Mix down. There we go. Three, four. Wiki, wiki. Welcome to the Recovery Elevator Podcast. My name is Paul Churchill, and I'm so excited to be here with you today. On today's episode, we have Emily. She's 44 years old from Phoenix, Arizona, and took her last drink on March 10th, 2019. Fantastic job, Emily. I want to say thank you to all of our Cafe ARE chat hosts. You guys do a great job. Sober travel. This April 12th to the 21st, we're going to Costa Rica, and we got four spots left. The deadline to register is Friday, February 24th. However, I think those spots might go before that. Link is in the show notes if you'd like to attend. Now, this upcoming Saturday, February 11th at 12 p.m. Eastern, we start our six-week sober ukulele course. You're going to learn the basics of how to play the ukulele. You're going to learn how to meditate with the instrument, and you're going to connect with others whose goal it is to live an alcohol-free life. All Saturday sessions are live, and you can watch the recording if you miss a class. There are also office hours during the week if you need additional help or just want to hang out and jam with the ukulele. This course starts in three weeks, which means you've still got plenty of time to pick up a ukulele. We've got a 15% off coupon for Kala Ukulele, who is sponsoring the course. And you can find this, uh, this code on the RE website. Link is in the show notes. Thank you, Robin. All right. Now let's hear from Exact Nature. Exact Nature's safe and healthy CBD-based products are formulated to help you with the challenges of quitting drinking such as addictive cravings, depression, anxiety, and lack of sleep. If you're interested in learning more, head on over to exactnature.com and use the promo code RE20 to receive a 20% discount on your order. That is RE20 at exactnature.com. Okay, let's get started. Let me ask you a question. If you did not drink last night, do you regret that decision? Or think back to the last night you were sober. Do you regret that? There are a lot of guarantees out there, and some of them are full of shit. But I can pretty much guarantee you that if you ditch the booze, you will not regret that decision. I can, with almost total certainty, tell you that if you take a couple days off drinking, a week, a month, or a year, you also will not regret that. Now, no need to talk forever or not drinking for the rest of your life. If you just take one night off drinking, you won't regret it. You'll wake up in the morning without a hangover, but more importantly, you'll realize you did something that you didn't think you could do. You went 24 hours without a drink. Now, the biggest accomplishment here is you decided not to listen to the string of thoughts telling you to drink. On the flip side, when we do drink, mentally we reinforce the ego or the thinking mind. Now let's talk money. Drinking isn't cheap. You won't regret having that extra 20 bucks in your account from not drinking last night, and that could be a safe estimate. You compound that over a night, several nights, a week, a month, or a year, or years, and you have saved several thousand dollars. 
If you take some time off booze and sit with your emotions, you will not regret it. You will become a deeper person who is more in tune with their inner self. You will not regret getting to know yourself or that inner kiddo who is wanting to be heard. Now planet Earth will not regret that you did not drink last night. There is less waste when you don't drink. We've all heard the term breaking the seal. Gallons of water are saved when we take just one night off of drinking. Landfills will also not regret your decision to not drink as they will not fill up as fast. So your family and loved ones won't regret your decision to not drink. Sometimes we say things we don't mean when we are drinking. This adds trauma to the collective human field. We all don't regret your decision to not drink. Now your pets will not regret your decision to not drink. They will be walked more, fed on time, and have clean water. Your job, your boss, and coworkers will not regret your decision to stop drinking. They are counting on you. They are paying you to show up. Now here's a big one. Your community needs you. The community will not regret your decision to abstain from alcohol. You can be an active participant in your community. Your car insurance policy will not regret your decision to stop drinking. Same with your homeowner's insurance and health insurance. Your local hospital and emergency room will thank you. Now, apparently 40 to 60% of hospital beds have ties to alcohol, which is an absolute crazy stat to me, but I believe it. Your spouse or significant other will not regret your decision to stop drinking. When we are half in the can, we are not showing up for our spouses, ourselves, or anybody. Maybe you have a garden, plants, or a lawn to mow. None of these living entities will regret that you didn't drink last night. Maybe you have a goal, a dream, to be or to do something great. This dream will not regret that you didn't drink last night. The human body has roughly 70 trillion cells. Not one, not one cell will regret you didn't drink last night. Your piano, your guitar, your ukulele, or your vocal cords will not regret your decision to not drink last night. The bicycle, the longboard, your cross-country skis in your garage won't regret that you didn't drink last night. Listeners, I need to be careful or cognizant of what I recommend or say on this podcast, but I can say with near certainty, you will not regret quitting drinking. For a day, a night, a week, a month, a year, or more, you will not regret that decision. Now, it takes bravery and courage to take this path. The path towards wholeness, which isn't always easy. Now, I know you all can do this, and I know this is why you're listening to the podcast, to quit drinking. I have heard you. I have met you. I have seen you. This audience is so remarkably strong, so inspirational, so loving, so authentic, and so badass. Listeners, you will not regret ditching the booze. You can do this. And now a word from our sponsor, BetterHelp, before we hear from Emily. How many times have you felt like you can't make positive changes in your life if you aren't feeling 100%? I know that for me, I don't always feel like I'm at my best. I've learned through therapy, though, that not feeling my best does not equal to not feeling empowered. I can accept my emotional wobbles and still feel empowered to take care of myself and my mental health. We have agency. We can get to the point where we trust ourselves enough to move forward in the right direction. If you're thinking of giving therapy a try, 
BetterHelp is a great option. BetterHelp is convenient and flexible. Also, it's entirely online. You can fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist and switch therapist at any time for no additional cost. If you want to live a more empowered life, therapy can get you there. Visit betterhelp.com elevator today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash elevator. Recovery Elevator, please help me welcome Emily. Emily, how the heck are you? I'm doing awesome, Chris. Thanks for having me. Thank you for agreeing to come on. I love this time that I get to spend with people. I love getting a chance to visit with folks in recovery. So thank you for agreeing to come on. And I'm excited to hear your story. Can you let listeners know how long you've been sober? Yes, I am coming up on four years in March. My sobriety date is 3-11-2019. Coming up on four years. How are you feeling? Oh, life is a gift. So much better. <laughs> Things are good. That is a big number you're coming up on. And that's amazing. Congratulations and nice job, sister. Before we get into the meat and potatoes of what we're doing here, can you tell us a little bit about yourself, uh, where you're from, what you do for a living, age, are you married, things like that? And most importantly, what do you like to do for fun? Yeah, for sure. So I uh, am 44, live here in Phoenix, Arizona. I am married to my wonderful husband of almost 17 years. I have two daughters and they are definitely in the height of activities right now. Pets, I'm going to go ahead and out myself that I'm a cat owner, but it's not it's not my fault. <laughs> <laughs> I'm a dog person, but we have two cats that kind of kind of keep us going. And for a living, I've for for the last 22 years been in various corporations and leadership roles, prior army, um, but tried something new this year with uh, music education. So giving that a whirl this year. Nice. What uh, what age? Teaching elementary. Okay. My wife my wife's been a teacher for. Uh, a decade well more than a decade she's been a teacher forever uh, and she just moved to elementary music how uh, how are you liking it you know there's there's a million joys to speak of and there's a lot of a lot of interesting to speak of as well so it's definitely yeah. been a, a learning journey but it's it's certainly fun being in music that's what she said too there's a lot of things that she did not expect and then the most important question emily what do you like to do for fun Ah, uh, so our family, we love just sitting around jamming, playing music, get some piano and singing, guitar going. We love to paddleboard now that we live in a sunny place. Let's see what else. I love to broad scan news. I'm a news junkie. I just absolutely love spending time just broad scanning every news outlet I can find and seeing what's going on in the world. And then podcasts. I'm a big um, just proponent of, of the RE podcast. I've listened to everyone and um, really just enjoy podcasting and listening. Awesome. All right, Emily, let's uh, let's do it. Let's do what we came here to do. Let's talk about your relationship with alcohol. Let's start from the beginning. Yeah. Well, I grew up in a very small town in Iowa, rural, rural community. And I grew up in a home that did not have alcohol. So I I didn't have, you know, drinking as part of my youth. I was not exposed to alcohol in my youth much. My dad was a recovered alcoholic. Um, that was kind of a family we don't talk about much situation. Parents were divorced, um, but I, I really didn't have a lot of exposure to it growing up. My first uh, time drinking was when I was 19. I was newly uh, out of military training. I had joined the army out of high school um, just to, to get some money for college and was in the reserves at that time and went to 
you know, Iowa State University and for the first time was, well, the second time, I guess, following military training was, you know, this this one person in a big sea of people coming from a really rural, small, close-knit community. And um, I was incredibly insecure and very much was postured to kind of live in a fear state, I think, and just just felt anxious, I think, all the time in the in the new social setting of college. I think just part of of my journey is I always um, felt like I didn't quite fit in, no matter how much I did fit in. And alcohol was presented to me during a, I joined ROTC and did a like an army officer training program and was presented to me during a, an outing before an ROTC event. And it was my my first time drinking. And I took three shots of Everclear, if you remember that, gasoline. Oy. And um, I blacked out. That was my, my first experience um, with alcohol. And I remember at the time, you know, growing up, there was there were so many rules of my childhood, how we present and what we do and what we don't do. Alcohol was one of the things we don't do. And so I remember after that feeling inside really excited that I fit in, that these these ROTC guys thought I was pretty cool because I drank with them, but also a huge sense of shame right away because I didn't remember the, the night before. And there was, I think, just some trauma that went along with that experience in itself. After that, I, you know, pretended like it didn't happen. I had just a ton of guilt and um, pretended like, you know, that that didn't happen, that that whole crazy evening. And fast forward, maybe a few weeks later, um, just hanging out with the, the same group. I remember them saying, let's get Emily drunk again. And at the time, that felt like approval. We want her to be a part of our group to me. And I so desperately, so desperately sought to fit in and particularly have approval from from men which kind of stems back to some childhood stuff we can maybe touch on later. But I decided, you know, I've already, I've already ruined my, my non-alcohol life that I was told never to drink. And um, why not? So that's just kind of where it picked up from there. I was a problem drinker from the start. And I've carried on through college with your stereotypical party, party life with, with that crowd. Um, what's interesting is I was such a rule follower by nature um, and such a hider by nature, um, only wanting to present this, you know, very capable, very rule following, very, you know, good grades and on time and keep it all together persona. You know, you've, you've mentioned, you've said a couple times a word present and that, uh, you know, having to present a certain image and just the, the thing that stands out to me is, is kind of identifying as a, as a non-drinker. This is, this is something that we, that we don't do. And then also finding the comfort and like the acceptance with this, with this community. And I, you know, I was in the military as well. So I, I fully grasped that, I, you know, I don't think it's just the military. I think that you find it like everywhere, especially in that age, but you're looking for that avenue to fit in and to find that a direct correlation, especially to have this group saying, Hey, let's get Emily drunk. Like that's, you're like, Oh, okay. This, all right. Well, this is, is this my thing now? But I imagine that's got to cause some conflict internally with this is who I was saying that I was, but also now there's this duality to me and uh, that's, that's got to cause some confusion inside. Yeah, for sure. And I think, I think that's, you hit the nail on the head. I think that's exactly from where my desire to cope with life by drinking came from is 
um, that double life, that hiding, wanting to present perfectionism and believing that I had to be um, achiever, rule follower, do-getter, kinder, you know, friend, all the things, all the roles were taught in life, especially in a small town, believing I had to present that way to, to not be abandoned. Yeah. And alcohol very quickly um, became the catalyst and the glue to allow me um, to be this person that was accepted regardless of, of being perfect. Um, and that worked for me for a while. Throughout college, I was, you know, again, kind of your stereotypical um, student. I, I didn't go to class much. I spent a lot of time drinking and hungover. I had massively bad hangovers from from the time I started drinking, always. Um, and I never had just one. I was always a binge drinker. It was all or nothing. And kind of fast forward, I, I somehow managed to graduate in, in three years and um, went active duty out into the world in the Army and was quickly thrust into this, again, this kind of dual world where on the outside, I'm going to present that I'm this polished, you know, military officer with, you know, all these accolades behind me. And on the inside, I am just absolutely crying. I am just absolutely struggling. I, I had the opportunity to be stationed various places around the U.S. and around the world. And the one thing throughout all of that time was a consistent um, show up, present, you know, have the uniform right, have the part right, excel, excel, achieve. And then that would, you know, finish out with a blackout um, eventually once a week, maybe once every other week. And at that time, it was, again, already a problem, but it hadn't to that point affected me to the point that it that it came to. Yeah. Yeah. Like there's a lot of, again, I can just, I can speak into that as well. Just with my experience in the military, it's kind of this two-headed monster where our resumes and our, and our appearance are, are very important. We, you know, if you're looking to advance, you have to, you have to look a certain way and, and do certain things and, and be very high achieving. But there also, if you want to, if you want to fit in, it's, you know, it's, it's a work hard, party hard culture. And yeah, I don't know. Tell me if, if, if this question is not appropriate, let me know. But I think there's also the military is, is it's a boys club to some, to some extent, probably to a large extent. And I just got to imagine that as a, as a female trying to like fit in with that too, there's maybe concession, some concessions that you were pressured to make or, or felt that you had to make just to, to, to be accepted by this group of men. Yeah, I was almost entirely the, in, almost in my entire military experience, the only woman um, in my unit of assignment. Um, I had a lot of specialty assignments just because of the career field I was in. And um, there was absolutely that. I don't think that was, you know, caused by the military experience. I think there was a lot, you know, early on that fed into this and in just how I identified or, or you know, who, who I was. But I think that need for approval and then doubling it with being one of the only women around um, was tough. I remember distinctly feeling like I have to present that I'm intelligent and put together and I don't want to seem like I'm all fluff. And that was something I really struggled with is being, you know, pride and being um, fearful that I wouldn't be seen as capable. What's funny is that my whole life, I had that. I had that well before the military. And the way I I overcame that was I made sure I achieved the highest marks in, in every possible thing. I, and you know, to date, I can be really grateful. I had a lot of really cool experiences um, and achievements, but the truth of the matter is the why behind that was filled with shame and guilt and fear in a, in a desperate desire to want to be a part of belong um, and not be abandoned. Yeah. Do you think there was any part of this? Uh, like once you, once you got into full-blown drinking, 
that there's a part of that high achievement was to convince yourself like I there's no there's no way that I can have an issue because look at this again that this resume I'm I'm doing this 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 I'm being recognized I, I've I've got uh, uh, promotions I'm, I'm people are seeing these things that I'm doing I'm I'm not the one with the problem absolutely I think that's a big part of my journey is um, being able to merge that that double life we have inside of what we want the world to see and what we're really um, struggling with. And that was absolutely, absolutely true for me. You know, as I finished out my military career, I'd met my husband toward the end of it. And, um, you know, was, um, I think for the first time in, in a relationship where I had the hope of maybe feeling loved and not abandoned. And that, that was a joyful time. But what's interesting is I, I didn't stop my drinking that, that, that bandaid was not put on um, just by meeting, you know, a wonderful person, having a wonderful relationship. My drinking continued. Um, if we fast forward a little bit, once I got married, you know, I had our, our, our first daughter and um, my husband was military as well. So he was gone a lot, um, a lot, lot, lot. And that time of isolation, isolation was something I was so used to doing and using alcohol to not just allow me to isolate, but also the alcohol pushing me further into isolation. Alcohol became um, kind of a next a next level um, problem during that time in my life. I remember specifically when my first daughter was born, we'd moved moved a bunch with his career. And I was at that time working, you know, some of my first corporate leadership roles. And um, I thought nothing of it to crack a bottle of wine open at 9 a.m., you know, when I was off work, um, just to get through the day. And I remember that being the feeling is this will get me through the day and having so much utter, utter denial and shame um, deep down, because if anyone knew, if anyone knew, you know, this, this person who had achieved and done all the things growing up and been in the military and done all this, um, got her education, if anyone really knew, you know, what would they think? Would they, would they, would they want me in their life? I just didn't understand that being human was okay. I just didn't understand that at that point. That's such a hard spot to be, Emily. And I think so many of us have felt that we're living these these dual lives where, again, like the, the word presenting keeps <laughs> presenting itself. Hey, oh, uh, but it keeps showing up as, and we're, there's this fear that if, you know, exactly what you just said, if, if anybody knows, if anybody had any clue what I was doing just just to get by right now, there's this fear that we're that that we're not enough, that we're only enough because of these all these positives that we have. And there's this fear that we're gonna be abandoned and let down. And that that fear can come from it can come from so many different places, through from childhood, just unmet needs. And it, it doesn't even have to be for some people, it's these big dramatic things that happened to them when they were children and and for others, it's, it's not, but it's, yeah, that's just, just listening to you talk about it. it. That's, I remember that feeling and it's, it's so, it's so lonely and isolating and we, we just don't see a way out. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that that speaks to, you know, we, we hear about the disease of alcoholism, drinking problem, whatever you'd like to call it. We, we hear about it be, being progressive and insidious that way. And I absolutely, without question, know that for me, at least, my disease was very much progressive. All those things we talk about, all the yets, um, I continued 
down the trail until I experienced a good chunk. <laughs> we fast forward a little bit through through the the years where I was having children, I was always able to stop drinking during those years for a decent amount of time without without too much of a problem. You know, certainly when I was pregnant with both of my children, things like that. And I was always able to kind of keep the image going. You know, she's put together and has her her ducks in a row. <laughs> and and we hear about until we can't. Um, and I was absolutely an example of that. Um, there was a turning point that started to happen. Like I said, I had already had from the time I started drinking regular blackouts and, you know, had moved into even daily drinking um, at certain times. Um, but there was a, a turning point. In 2005, I had, and this is backing up just a bit, but I had um, come back from being stationed overseas in the military. This is just before I got out of the military. And I had kind of, I don't want to use the word reunited because it's not that I had never seen him, but I i was got stationed where my father, my biological father lived. Mm. And it was kind of this, this amazing, you know, God shot gift because I hadn't grown up with him. And while I did see him, um, for, for visitations and things like that on and off growing up, I didn't have what I would call a relationship with him um, of any substantial value. It was pretty surfacy. And when I came back, I had this gift to just start over and get to know him. And that's what I did. I went running with him, um, got to know him. He talked about his his journey with alcoholism. We, we talked about that. I had certainly not come to terms with my own problem yet, but it was such a beautiful time. And I had these three precious years getting to know this man who was kind of a mystery um, to me. I knew he was very talented. I knew that he was a good man. I knew that he had been an alcoholic before before him and my mom separated, but I didn't know a whole lot more about him. It was always surface level growing up because he had, he had remarried into a family that had four, four children, you know, so he was a stepfather for four kids and we weren't really, you know, I, I had felt very not his daughter growing yeah. up. So when I got this opportunity, I mean, I just jumped in with both feet and um, I'm so grateful for that because we, we had this time and it was very healing. You know, looking back, I don't have regrets, but if I could wish, I wish I had had recognized my problem to the degree it had become already at that time, because I think he would have been a lot of a lot of help in helping me come to terms with that. But um, I remember my birthday in 2005. My dad and I, you know, I was, a, I was an adult just getting ready to get out of the military, still single at that point, hadn't gotten married. And um, my dad and I spent the day together for my birthday and went and saw a movie and had lunch and just hung out. That night, he said, you want to go want to go running and go for a night run? And I said, nah, dad, you know, I'm going to go meet my friends and go out for my birthday. And, um, you know, typical, had a good, solid blackout evening. And um, the next morning, I, I woke up and um, got a phone call. My dad had passed away. You know, they, they didn't determine why it, it went undetermined. He was a pretty young guy still, early 50s. But it just crushed me. It just crushed me. So that was hard. And I think what was, we'll get into kind of the alcohol effect with this, but I think what was so difficult about that is because in my childhood years, I had a pretty unhealthy home dynamic, lots of real hard work, lots of rules, and it was a pretty abusive home um, with my stepfather. And when I had this opportunity to actually sort of reunite and build this relationship with my, my, my own father, I had just so much hope around that and I felt loved yeah. and that meant a lot to me. And it was just in an instant, you know, just that was it. And so I did what Emily always does. I ran, I ran like hell. I quickly got a different, um, got out of the military and got a different job in another state. That's what I'd always done is moved, moved, moved. 
And um, my drinking took to a whole new level at that time. That's kind of the period where I started coming home from work. And instead of buying one bottle of wine a night, I'd buy two and polish both off, right? On my own at home. And I, I wasn't ready yet to recognize that there's some serious stuff going on underneath this, Emily, and there's some stuff we need to look back and take a look at. It was just, for me, a way to survive. It, 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 it just took me through pain yeah. and made it a little more numb. Yeah. I just want to acknowledge that I think that, that losing people in general is hard, right? I mean, that's a given. Uh, losing parents is a, another level. And then, you know, I, I'm glad... Obviously, what a devastating thing! I'm glad that you're able to to have that that time of reconciliation and that you were able to to have a few years memories. But yeah, I just want to acknowledge, like, I mean, what a what a hit that is. I mean, that's I think that'd be just so incredibly hard for for anybody, Emily. And I'm I'm so sorry for that. And I think that I think you paint a a good picture of how how alcohol shows up in our lives that. Maybe if our usage is at at a stage, you know, life events like that can, you know, without without us even anticipating it, alcohol, you know, booze shows up and and takes it to, takes itself to a whole nother level because you know maybe we've seen that it works on a, a rough day at work or you know it's, oh it's been a long week and that, you know alcohol can kind of take me away from that and then to have something that huge happen. You know, I I had a sudden loss of my brother in 2016, and that's uh, booze did the same thing. It was I, I just his passing just poured gas on that fire, and things got real dark real quick. Yeah, yeah. So, well, let's keep going forward. You know, earlier earlier you had mentioned that uh, you know you got married, that you had a bit of this dual life going on, but there were there were moments, you know, through uh, through your pregnancies and through the birth. Uh, of your of your kids that you were able to to maintain but then but then things did eventually shift back uh, yeah yeah that's exactly it there would always be you know if you kind of think of it like a rolling plane you know midwestern or the plane yeah. <laughs> but if you think of it like a rolling plane it started out as you know some gentle hills and then some gentle valleys and then as we went on it became like you know mount everest followed by the grand canyon um, that's the best I can describe my drinking yeah. journey with the progression. As as my daughters, you know, you know, started to grow up a little bit, um, we had many, many, many family moves um, just just due to my husband's military career at the time. And in each one of those, what it offered, you know, an active drinker like myself was is an opportunity to run and start over where I could just leave all of that shame and embarrassment. If I had drunk dialed someone or said too much at a work party after drinking too much or, you know, any any mildly embarrassing or very shameful event, I could just leave that behind and start over in a new state. And that worked for me until it didn't. If we kind of fast forward to, you know, what my, my final demise was, I had gone from this, you know, I think sensitive human that really tried and wanted to see and be light in the world to a very sick, depressed, sad, absolutely struggling to survive each day human. At the, the last few years of my drinking, um, we had moved to this new location and I was in a director role at a at a company and doing fine with work. I always, you know, always, always excelled at work. I probably worked too much, <laughs> but I had gotten to where um, I could no longer just come home from work and have a couple of bottles of wine 
and that be okay with the relationships around me. Um, I had already um, had a DUI back in, in in 2007. That was a yet. Never would happen to me. It did. Mm-hmm. I had already had many, 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 many occurrences with having a loved one call me out. And my sister, for one, were very close. She's a year ahead um, of me in life, um, age-wise. And, you know, many, many occurrences of her saying, are you driving? Emily, are you driving? Because I was was driving behind the wheel drunk so many times and calling. I, I would pick up the phone a lot when I was drunk and driving. So many of those. And I got to the point in this this final uh, move where it was just not enough to 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 release all of that, numb out all of that that background and pain in the evening. I resigned my position and I took a position working at home at that time. And I know now that although I told myself it was because I wanted to be more available to my kids, um, that I was just on a very rapid decline into nowhere. And when I when I took that, I for the first time started drinking uh, while I was working. Um, it would not be unusual to see me with literally a coffee cup, so no one would know it was wine because they can't smell it, full of Chardonnay at 10 in the morning while working on my work at home. And at that time, my my husband and I had had quite a few conversations um, about my drinking, uh, my blackouts and, you know, even vomiting at night and things like that had become enough that, you know, he was concerned. Um, It was affecting our marriage. It was affecting my children. It was affecting certainly just myself. (laughs) Um, It was affecting I was no longer close with my my extended uh, friends or family in life. I was very much just in contact on the surface, but but there was no real there was no realness there anymore. It was all it was all about just being able to survive with booze and everything else was on the surface and didn't really matter. Yeah, um, right. I was in a lot of pain, and I I woke up one day, typical in this home job, and got everybody ready and you know, took care of everything. That's typical me. I'll make sure everything's taken care of first. And then um, I started drinking as I normally did. I went out of a coffee cup and this was not unusual, but I you know, had too much. And I, I think it must have been by noon. I was blacked out. I don't remember roughly the time, um, but I remember that day I woke up. There was vomit on the floor. I was wearing pajamas. I was absolutely like fall down level intoxicated, just waking up out of this blackout. And I realized it was time to pick up my kids and... So I hurried and I got in the car, absolutely drunk. That was not unusual for me, unfortunately, and went to get them at their school. When I got there, they said, it's conference day. And I had gotten to a point in my illness where I didn't even know those things. And that is not like me. I would never drive with my children. I would never miss their conferences. I would never. I am not that mom. I am not that person. That's how I felt. I said, I'm not that person. And I got there and they said, it's conference day. And I remember feeling like I'm not going to make it down the hallway. I could barely walk. I could barely walk. And I sat through that conference. I remember her handing me a pen and supposed to be signing something and I could barely grab the pen. And why they didn't call the police on me that day, I don't know. I will consider that a gift from the universe that I didn't get hauled away that day for showing up that way for my children. But I came home after that with my children and my oldest my oldest, I'd done. I'd worked so hard to hide this side of me from them, and she backed into a wall and she said, "Mom, you're scaring me." And that was enough. I had so much hiding. I called a friend and she came over and I just sobbed. And as I sobered up, 
you know, for maybe the millionth time, I, you know, without exaggeration, probably at least the hundredth time said, I will never drink again. And got to bed that night and got the girls all tucked in. And I woke up the next day and that same friend said, let me take the girls out for a while. My husband was gone during this for a number of months for his training. And I woke up that next day and went and bought another bottle of wine. And um, I was so sick and so tired. I was so tired of keeping up with the Joneses. And I just crashed. And it was the next day after that, that was March 11th of 2019. I walked myself into an AA meeting. It was not my first AA meeting. I had tried a few bouts of, of walking into the rooms of AA and decided that wasn't for me <laughs> for the 20, you know, 20 years prior. And from there, I found, I found hope and grace and people saying, you're not an evil, horrible person. You're a sick person. Yeah. And uh, started my rebuild. Emily, man, you just hit a lot of big stuff. Just a couple things, the way that our priorities shift, you know, you talked about starting isolating yourself from your, from your, uh, your close friends and even from your family, you know, not, not being able to even realize that it's, that it's conference day. And, and as you were talking about that, it just makes me think of this, what alcohol does for so many of us is it creates this separation of this, this person who, who we are. Like, like I know who I am and I, you know, I am all these things. I am good and honorable and, and truthful. And these are the things that we want to be. And that's, that's, you know, that's inside of us. That's who we are. But when we just get intertwined with alcohol, there's this separation of, of who we are and then like what we're actually doing. And that's such a, a painful space to be. And, you know, talking about picking up your, your kids, you know, under the influence, like I relate to that personally, like I've been in very similar situations. And I've, and I've asked myself that same thing, like, holy shit, like how, how did this happen? And how did it like, how am I not locked up as a result of it? And then the moment with your daughter where, where she looked at you and said that, that, you know, mom, you're scaring me. That's again, as, as a father, like almost very similar situations I've, I've been through. And it's just like, that hits me. And I think there's going to be a lot of parents listening or people who have been on either side of that. And it's, it's, it's so tough. And it's the big takeaway for me from all of that is that just the little, I know you, like I, I can tell that that's not you, but like alcohol just steals our soul and it makes us a shell of the person who we are, like not just to ourselves, but to the people that we love. And, and I used to think, you know, when my wife would have those conversations with me about my drinking and what am I, what I'm doing, like, I thought it was all about control and I hated it. It made me so frustrated, but like all these people in our lives, they just want us back. That's it. They just, they, they want us, the true us, the ones that, that they love back and alcohol just depletes that. Uh, yeah. But I'm, I'm so grateful that, you know, obviously it's, it sucks is like the understatement of the decade. It sucks that this stuff happened. It's terrible, but I'm so glad that you found yourself um, back in the rooms or, or, you know, and that, 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 that was, that that's what helped get it going for you. We've got a little bit of time. So let's, let's talk about what things look like beyond March 11th. Yeah. I'm smiling already. I have so much gratitude um, for what an alcohol-free life can actually do to bring a person home. And by home, I mean a place of safety, a place of love, a place of grace, a place of self-acceptance. I started my journey kind of dual with AA and also um, I went to an IOP that that fateful day I, sh I shared with you, um, which was again at a long string of, of similar stories. That was just one more. 
I had made a phone call and talked with some treatment centers and saying, you know, I don't know if I qualify. I, I don't know if I'm that bad. You know, I just drink wine, you know, um, <laughs> and they actually said, you know, we do have some inpatient and you absolutely, you know, could, could come um, where we lived at the time. There wasn't a lot of options within driving distance and my husband was gone and I didn't at the time feel like I could ask, you know, can you come home? Cause I need some help. Um, I know today that that was my own inner dialogue. That's something I've learned in recovery is to ask for ask for help when I need it. But I, I started an IOP. I did, uh, you know, 90 meetings, in 90 days, many more than that, actually, for that process and um, met just a wonderful group of people that were just like me. And uh, for the first time was was willing to surrender and just shed the lies, the hiding, the 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 double life and acknowledge that I just I was a hurting person that needed some help. And from there, um, you know, I, I got through, got through the IOP and, you know, started to clear up and feel quite a bit better. Um, even in that first 30, 60 days, for the first time I started doing music again, I had really, really shut down any creative side of myself throughout, you know, the last 10 years of my drinking, maybe five for sure. Started to, you know, immerse myself into the community of AA um, and then we we moved one more time right in the middle of that <laughs> to where we live today. And um, I was able to find, you know, a community here. But then I was also able to find RE. And I, I so desperately needed at that time just other adults my age um, with maybe some similar circumstances um, to, to not isolate myself. And that really did a lot for me. I just enjoyed listening to the podcast. I enjoyed the dialogue um, online with, with Cafe RE. Um, and just little by little, I have to also say sponsorship saved me. Um, I had a, a wonderful sponsor um, here here in Phoenix that um, we're still in contact certainly today, um, who, who really guided me through a lot of early recovery work and, and helped me for the first time get honest without being afraid of being abandoned, if I was honest, right? Yeah. And um, it was really pivotal. So, You know, there's, I think there's a lot of people who, and AA doesn't have to be everybody's bag. I just throw that little disclaimer right, out there. Right. I'm a I'm a twelve step guy. I love it. Uh, it's been a, a huge source of of healing for me as well. But I think there's a lot of a lot of misconceptions or misunderstandings about like what it can look like. And I'm glad that you brought up sponsorship. Would you share just a little bit about like what that relationship looks looks or looked like for you? And I, again, with a disclaimer, like everybody. I think the relationships between sponsor and sponsor, sponsee, there's as many options as there are people who, who are sponsor and sponsee, but what were some of the things that, that made that uh, like a successful and meaningful relationship to you? Yeah. I think the first thing that just made that successful was that I was so willing. I was at a place, you know, early recovery where I was just so willing to do you know, what she what she suggested and not not in a, a rule following rigid structural way, but more so here's a woman with, you know, 15 plus years sobriety being just willing to follow suggestions. And I think um, she, she had an approach that really worked for me where she was always saying, Emily, put down the bat, put down the bat. You've punished yourself enough. She knew that I had grown up in a home that was a very punishing environment, um, not a healthy environment. And um, she she recognized that more self-punish was probably not going to help me. <laughs> so I think, you know, just being matched with a person that you trust and who you feel understood by was really important to me. 
And also, again, the willing, just being willing to be authentic with that one person. If no one else, just that one person, give it a try. Um, because that's truly where where my healing started to branch out. As I was able to grow and trust that one person, I was able to start shedding some of those fears and now it's left another. And ultimately, you know, fast forward, it, it resulted, you know, with therapy and sponsorship and recovery programs and a lot of reading and all the different tools we have. It resulted in me trusting myself again. And I didn't trust myself for a long time. That's beautiful. I love that. I love that you have that for you because you deserve it. We all, we all deserve it. And I'm grateful that, that you've been able to get there, that you, that you found the support uh, that you needed to get you there. I think the people that we, the people that we let into our lives in recovery become such a, a big part of us. And it's, it's important to choose those relationships wisely. And I, I don't say that like to, to scare anybody off, but I, hopefully as a means of encouragement, is that like, we have, we, we can choose, we can find the meeting that works for us. We can find the sponsor that works for us. We can find the the accountability partners or, or whatever the case may be. We can find them, those people that work for us that, that know where we came from. They're not about putting shame onto us, but hold us accountable and, and propel us forward, not drag us down. I think that's a big thing. That's what, that's what so many of us are trying to do is, is lift one another up because we know what we've all been through. Yeah. 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 For me, that was huge. Um, and I think I, I like what you said too, also the accountability partner thing. I think there's this beautiful blend in an accountability partner, sponsor, whatever you'd like to call it, trusted confidant um, in our recovery journeys. There's this beautiful blend of having someone remind us to be gentle with ourselves and how we're approaching life and our own journey and moving forward rather than backwards in our thinking, but also someone who can say, is that really what, is that really what you want to do? Let's talk about that. <laughs> um, and I think that's been helpful to me too. Um, I had a lot of beliefs that life had to be and should be hard. It should be. I had a lot of shitting all over myself, as they say. Um, should, should, should. And she really helped me challenge those beliefs. Um, life doesn't have to be hard. Um, and it wasn't designed to be hard. It was designed to be an experience um, to help sand some of those corners and help shine some light in others and help us learn stuff and experience. But it wasn't designed to be a punishment. And um, I actually believed that when I was sick, that it was a punishment. And today it is, it is just so very different. You know, I'm, I'm thankful for little things today, having, you know, people in my life that I love and am loved by, um, healthy kids, um, a warm home, food on the table, choices, education, you know, those things, those things start to reveal themselves when our perspective changes and our perspective is so thick when we're sick. And we can all heal. You know, it starts to lighten up as we heal. Amen to that. I love it. We do not, we don't have to suffer. That's not what we're here for. Uh, life can be a beautiful thing and, and we can, we can each find that. Emily, we are at the rapid fire round. All right. In 30 to 60 seconds, answer these questions, please. Uh, what was your biggest fear as you were thinking about quitting drinking? Having to live without something that to numb pain, mm. emotional pain. Yep. It becomes a tool for us in the scary. Mm -hmm. uh, what is a positive that you didn't expect in your life without alcohol? That I'm just so joyfully happy doing the, the basic things in life. Getting up, going to work, going on a walk, seeing the sunshine. I didn't expect how, how beautiful life can be just with the basics when our perspective heals. 
What is your go-to alcohol-free drink? Oh, I've got a bunch. Uh, coffee, for sure, plain. Coke Zero. We'll stop with those two, but I have a bunch. <laughs> That'll do. I think we all find something. I know for me, like sparkling water has just become my identity. It's all right, though. Uh, what is your plan in sobriety moving forward? Yeah, you know, I, I rejoined uh, Cafe RE, oh, I don't know, a number of months ago. And I did that intentionally. Just I kind of think you hear about growth mindset and, you know, the career and leadership culture. I believe in growth mindset with my recovery for me. So I want to stay uncomfortable and keep um, putting myself um, with, with, you know, new people and new groups and new opportunities to be a part of my own recovery, but also be a part of others. So my plan is to continue just diving in with just the beautiful people in Cafe RE um, sponsorship. I recently started sponsoring someone and that's really such a gift for me. A lot of times we, we think of sponsor for the other, a sponsorship is helping just the other person, but it's certainly going to be, you know, just as helpful for me. Um, and then I think just, you know, I always have goals, you know, I, I, I'd love to take my recovery as I move forward into spaces where I can, you know, get on maybe a better routine with exercise and, you know, bring in some of the RE tools with, you know, eating and um, just kind of that overall health and wellness. That's just some of the goals I have looking forward and continuing bucket list stuff, you know, wanting to, I want to write more. I, I was terrified of journaling for so many years, but today I, I look forward to writing more. I love it. What parting piece of guidance can you give to our listeners who are either early in recovery or thinking about getting sober? Yeah. If it's crossed your mind that you're hurting and that alcohol is a part of the problem, you're right. Don't second guess it. If it's crossed your mind once, you're right. And um, the day we we truly, truly, truly in our visceral gut choose um, to surrender that we don't have to fix this. We don't have to fix this alone. We don't have to um, force through the outcome the day we surrender that there is um, other people or higher powers or other other things in our life that can help us um, is the day we start start healing beautiful emily and last but certainly not least can you give listeners your favorite you might need to ditch the booze if lined wow i have so many of these i mean i have hundreds of stories but um I would say you might need to ditch the booze if you're, quote, going again to Whole Foods bar to work with your laptop and you're in a Whole Foods grocery store for the third time waking up from blacking out with vomit on you, you might want to go ahead and seek some help. This is a safe space, but also get your shit together. Uh, you might, <laughs> might want to take a look. Oh man, Emily, that's a tough one. I want to thank you again so much for coming on the show. It's, I know it can be a bit terrifying, but it's, uh, it means a lot to me and it means a lot to a lot of people out there that there's folks just like you who are willing to come on here and share what they've been through. And it, it provides a lot of hope to our community and to people around the world. So thank you. Thank you. Thank you for coming on. Thank you so much, Chris, for having me. This was a big a big goal today to just bring it all together into alignment and freedom with having, having no secrets. Well, nice job, sister. I'm proud of you. All right. Thank you. We'll, we'll talk to you soon. Recovery Elevator, thanks for listening. And thank you, Emily, for coming on the show. You're going to help a lot of people today. 
One of the beautiful things about recovery is when we're able to find parts of ourselves that we think we might have lost. Emily has been able to reconnect with her love for music, and we're going to hear her song, Am I Alright, is the outro today. In her words, I wrote this at about six months sober, at a time where I was transitioning into mental clarity to realize from where I had come to the present. There was a great deal of sadness, but also glimmers of hope that I had found through AA, RE in the recovery community, faith, fitness, and more. I wrote this, and I'm on vocals and piano. A relative of mine did the guitar and harmonies. This is a big step for me, now over three and a half years sober, to be sharing more publicly my gifts and some aspects of my journey. I just wanted to share, maybe it'll help someone sometime. I love hearing stories of community members and listeners getting parts of their lives back. For way too long, we let booze run the show while denying ourselves in the process. It's very cool to be able to hear and see how people in recovery are exploring their past interests or picking up new ones. I'd love to know how you're finding pieces of you along the way in your recovery journey. That's all we've got this week. Remember, we took the elevator down, but we've got to take the stairs back up. You can do this. I love you guys.
We're all human. 